Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Recorded live. Satan's ball earth. This is hang deception. The whole world is lying in the power of the wicked one. From the Bible. One John chapter five verse nineteen. And this is literal. Look at this image here. Satan, the devil, over this false image of the ball earth. Now, according to science, which I've mentioned many times in the past, it's nothing more than a satanic deception. According to science, Earth is orbiting around the sun at 66,600 miles per hour. Of course, numerology these zeros mean nothing. You're left with 666. Now, if you think that's just a coincidence, take a look here. The science says, supposedly, the Earth is at a 23.4 degree angle on the axis, which leaves you with 66.6 degrees off horizontal. You see how Satan deceives the world and as mockery, you'll see these numbers always in plain sight. Not to get too far off subject, this false space will have occultic numbers with Mercury supposedly orbits around the sun in 88 days. Everything is based around the occult. All the lies that were told in schools in the history books now, more 666 in society today. So happens, this radio station in Canada is called 66.6 Pirate Radio. Now, more imagery with the pirate relating to Satan, the devil. You've got the one-eye symbolism, the eye of Lucifer, the all-seeing eye, and, of course, skull and bones. World movie from 1964, The Devil Ship, Pirates. The Devil and the Pirates, how that connects the Skull and Bones. Right here. This image here, let me get this image here with Bush. The Skull and Bones. The proper image here. There we go. George Bush. Golden bones. So you see how everything connects this world, this satanic world that we live in, run by Satanists. They control, of course, the music industry as well. 666. 66.6. They put it out here. 
see some more imagery here. And of course, Fox News in numerology is 666. Just like Triple X Porn is 666. This is the society they created. This is the society that people have been blinded to. They watch Fox News, they believe what they hear. Fox News, devil's deception. Of course, such Machiavelli. Sorry about last recording, too. Hopefully you didn't do it all. Some good stuff. Brainwashing America, Satanic, Illuminati, Mind Control. The other one I wanted to just listen to was the Russian vids. Here we go. This is a film about psychological warfare. A specific type of warfare designed to distract, misinform, but trust me, trust me, Jones. and anesthetize the brain. It has many disguises and is used against every one of them. Against them and against them. Of course, such Machiavellian activity requires a disguise, which is why propagandists call themselves the public relations industry. But do not be fooled. Public relations and propaganda are interchangeable, and it is the massive public relations industry that is designed to alter perception we shape reality and manufacture consent. A Hollywood set designer was brought in to create a $200,000 backdrop for official war briefings. Today, America alone has more public relations propagandists than reporters, which means that nearly half of what people in the West hear, see, or read is written by professional liars. Professional liars whose job it is to keep people in front of their televisions, reading gossip magazines, eating vast amounts of toxic food, and shopping, always shopping for the latest fashions and trends. That's the ideal for propagandists. And great efforts are made in trying to achieve and maintain that ideal. Anything that keeps the masses from organizing themselves and asking important questions about what their masters are really up to. The 1960s, a period of heightened awareness and rebellion against the establishment, 
What is making them scream and cry with such profound joy? They are on a television program where they are receiving consumer items. This for some This for some clothes shelves. And this hysteria is not because they have found God, but because they are receiving sneakers. The propagandist knows that an individual has a natural desire to be on a winning side and appear to fit in with the crowd. One of the easiest ways to achieve this is to make them chant favorable, yet deliberately vague slogans like, This changes everything. This is going to change everything. Just, Just do it. I'm loving it. Or, support our troops. The point of slogans like, support our troops, is that they don't mean anything. That's the whole point of good propaganda. You want to create a slogan that nobody's going to be against and everybody's going to be for. Nobody knows what it means because it doesn't mean anything. Points out Professor Noam Chomsky. With this in mind, propagandists can provide simple answers to complex problems and ask for approval without question. Either you're with us, either you love freedom, or you're with the enemy. They can use this method to sell phones, violence, cosmetics, or even false wars like the unwinnable war on terror announced by these degenerates and the hypocritical war on drugs announced by this master criminal who is awarding the medal to this man for joining the war on drugs despite this man being a drug addict. The most popular slogans contain virtue words that embody what slaves in the West have been conditioned to value most dearly. Words like freedom, truth, peace, liberty, and most importantly, democracy. The 20th century has been characterized by three developments of great political importance. The growth of democracy, the growth of corporate power, and the growth of corporate propaganda as a means of protecting corporate power against democracy. Like Howard Zinn. Let's look at that last line again. The growth of corporate propaganda as a means of protecting corporate power against democracy. Is this true? Let's look at the facts. But your government Since 1945, America has tried to overthrow 50 governments, many of them democracies. 
In the process, over 30 countries and their people have been attacked, including our own great and powerful socialist sovereign nations. And the result, not one single undemocratic country has been turned into a genuine democracy. I want peace as much as you do. The grotesque act of invading other countries, claiming them as your territory, and stealing their resources to keep your emperor, crown, or corporate owners in power is to be known as empire building. The latest propaganda slogan for empire building is globalization, a vague word with warm connotations of unification. But what it really means is the acquisition of other people's resources at any cost and unlimited slave labor. Slave labor needed to produce the unnecessary goods sold to these slaves. Slaves to persuasion and influence. In reality, these are debt slaves since they can't even afford the things they buy. Even in times of peril and economic meltdown, at the orders of their president, they must keep consuming. Is this democracy? On February 15, 2003, millions of people worldwide took to the streets in the world's largest ever day of protest, a protest against the pirate Bush regime and a British and Australian lapdog who wanted to go to war on manufactured grounds. The majority of the world voted against this war, but were ignored. Is this democracy? The powerful 1% went ahead with their pre-planned war, as always, using the poorest people's children to do the fighting. It's important to note that these cowards were happy to order mass death and destruction, despite never having been in battle themselves. Is this democracy? No. Real democracy is when the majority of people make a decision and it's upheld. For example, in polls taken throughout the world, the vast majority of citizens want to see these war criminals committed to stand trial for crimes against humanity. Since 90% of the casualties of their false war on terror were innocent civilians. For terrorists like Tony Blair, the Mafia, and the IRA, Catholicism is the ideal choice. The Catholic Church wholeheartedly supported the Nazis, and with the help of the CIA, 
continue to protect them after the fall of the third Reich by passing them along the infamous rat line to safety in America. It also goes out of its way to protect the malignant child abusers who run its operations worldwide. Most of all, it protects the Pope, the richest man in the world, who travels to Africa pleading for an end to poverty, despite never using his own riches to help his most desperate followers. Instead, he promises the poorest that they will be the richest in heaven. This crusade, this war on terrorism, uh, is going to take a while. This toxic Texan claims that God told him to invade Iraq and Afghanistan. So he did, killing hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. He must speak to the same God as his father, whose war and sanctions killed millions of innocent civilians in the same place. I have said to the people of Iraq that our quarrel was not with them, but instead with their leadership, and above all with Saddam Hussein. You, the people of Iraq, are not our enemy. We do not seek your destruction. This man clearly enjoys killing people, even though he was too scared to fight for his country during the American War of Aggression in Vietnam. He broke all records for killing prisoners during his time as a governor of Texas. Such a civilized society, America, where this two-term president refused to pardon Ricky Ray Rector from execution. A man so severely retarded that when the guards interrupted his last meal to lead him to his execution, he assured them it was okay because he would just have to finish it when they got back. Like God, these leaders show no mercy to the weak. Even in their own country, after a devastating hurricane, no mercy for the weak. And here, no mercy for the weak. Mr. President, final question. Yes, sir. You said famously, when you looked into Vladimir Putin's eyes, you saw his soul. Yeah. When you look into Benedict XVI's eyes, what do you see? God. Look into Benedict XVI's eyes, what do you see? God. When you look into Benedict XVI's eyes, what do you see? God. When you look into Benedict XVI's eyes, what do you see? God. When you look into Benedict XVI's eyes, what do you see? God. The whole truth. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. And nothing but the truth. Although the psychopath makes up less than 5% of the Western population, those infected with narcissism and unusual intelligence force their way into the 1% who rule over the masses. Drawn to politics and big business, they are strongly against democracy. Because in a true democracy, 
these treacherous monsters would be impeached and sentenced to death for lying, fraud, treason, race hate, mass murder, and war crimes. But impeachment is not acceptable, declared this smiling new president, who came to power in 2009. Why? Because he is one of them. Precise. His advisors are drawn from the same gang of Washington thugs and Wall Street banksters as the so-called opposition. His presidency was paid for by the same lobbyists and corporations that sponsored all of the other presidents before him. Here we see the most obvious lie in democracy, the one that two candidates represent a choice when they are clearly run by the same interests. There is actually a single-party system in the United States, a demo-republican party, under the guise of two parties, Democrat and Republican. No matter which of the two you vote for, you vote for the demo-republican party. This is said by a conservative ideologue, R. Ridger. This time, vote like your whole world depended on it. Allowing people to vote for one of your brands is the best way to make them feel like they are connected to their candidate and involved in a democracy. When they become wary or distrustful of one candidate, you give them a completely new smiling face. And simple slogans like, yes we can, and time for change, that are easy to chant and provide hope, but are essentially meaningless. Meaningless, because this charming president will do exactly what he is told to do by his corporate masters, spending countless billions on killing humans in faraway lands, while his own people continue to suffer. Democracy is just a slogan. In this vulgar television series, carefully selected Americans have to pretend to survive by being the most conniving, manipulative, and money-hungry contestant on embarrassingly contrived multi-million dollar sets to win money. For a million dollars, I can do just about anything. This is a perfect metaphor for America, where the real survivors are the millions of homeless people who don't get to go home after filming. <laughs> Look at these images from celebrated filmmaker Quentin Tarantino. What happened to this man as a child? What did America do to him that he should make such images for people to watch? Is he a psychopath? No. He is simply reinterpreting the Western cult of death he grew up with for new generations of consumer zombies 
who crave seeing their fellow humans mutilated in new and invented ways. Make your choice. You're either with us or against us. This reassures the 99% that the 1% is strong and has everything under control. Now they can relax and get back to their football game, video games, TV shows, or go shopping. The 1% have always controlled the 99% with religion. They are the ones who control information and decide what people think. They even decide what people know about the past. Who controls the past controls the future, and who controls the present controls the past. George Orwell. When carrying out attacks on other nations, destroying their infrastructure, and deforming their future generations with the use of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, the imperialist needs to rewrite history and keep repeating it over and over until it becomes true. Young lady with the red hair right behind the school teacher there. Mr. President, why did you drop the atom bomb? Mr. President, the future wants to know, was it right to drop the atom bomb? I made the only decision I ever knew how to make. I did what I thought was right. Throughout the years of negotiations, we have insisted on peace with honor. Let us be proud of the young Americans who serve with honor and distinction. World today. In my line of work, you've got to keep repeating things over and over and over again for the truth to sink in, to kind of catapult the propaganda. George W. Bush. Television is the most powerful weapon of psychological warfare in history. Consumer slaves in the West schedule their lives and relationships around watching television. They use it as a babysitter for their youth and wake up to this drug, consume it whenever possible during the day, and go to sleep with it. They even take it with their meals. Television, or TV, as they call it in the West, doesn't kill. It turns viewers into compliant zombies. 
They wear a vacant, glassy-eyed look on their faces because they are in a trance-like state. This is ID. Now the consumer is sitting still and ready for indoctrination. No force is necessary here. He is a willing participant. It is no mistake that happiness in the West peaked in the 1960s before television was used to enforce capitalism's consumer message. The message that you are not happy. Not unless you buy this product. Look like this person. Or drink this beverage. The West calls these images advertising. Advertising is both propaganda and propaganda distributor. Advertising is about hawking products and creates artificial needs, since most products are completely unnecessary. Your favorite music? Advertising unashamedly fosters unhappiness with oneself and with one's possessions. In fact, the very purpose of advertising is to open up emotional vulnerabilities and make people feel that without this product, they are defective. You, have, you need to protect your skin, you need to hydrate your skin, you need to moisturize your skin, and you need to repair your skin. Corporations employ psychologists, writers, and filmmakers to sell what is essentially the same product. A certain toothpaste, for instance, claims to have a feeling of freshness. Some claims to have dazzling strips of whitening ability. This one is for people who claim to have teeth so sensitive that it feels like they've been stung by lightning. One of the tricks of effective advertising is to identify the product with a highly desirable quality that has widespread appeal. If you buy this, you will have clear skin and become attractive to others. Use this product and pretend that you too can be a farmer. Drive this car and appear liberated and adventurous, like these actors. Advertisements are nothing but bait, laid out for certain types of consumers. Up to 14 times more volume. These same methods are used to glorify the corporations who make these products. This is called corporate propaganda. For example, the General Electric Company likes to boast about its imagination at work, which includes money lending and manufacturing equipment for building missiles and other armaments. The truth is that corporations exist only to make money and are even legally compelled to prioritize making profits over competing interests, such as the well-being of consumers. And there is no such thing as enough profit for the capitalist.
This is why they promote globalization, the new slogan for empire. It allows them to promote their symbols, also known as brands, by using slave labor in third world countries. These imperial brands are a symbol of value and meaning, like a flag. But their only allegiance is to profit, not country. Their goal? Maximum profit. Their target? Human beings. It's a mindless consumer who craves their product and keep buying it. At any cost to their country, fellow citizens, and the environment. And for what? Look at the background of this commercial. This product is for those with money and high social standing, according to the image. This is how the bizarre need to appear superior to friends, fellow workers, and neighbors mercilessly enlarged and exploited. But advertising is not just for adults. Propagandists spend $12 billion per year specifically targeting children to form consumer habits early on. They can ingrain their brand by repeating it over and over until the child is indoctrinated and manipulated beyond control. By 18 months, babies in the West can tell the difference between brands. And by two, they're asking for brand products by name. From the age of seven, the average child has seen 20,000 TV commercials every year. There is only one other group more coveted and groomed by advertisers than any other, pre-teen and teenage girls. The propagandists call this the tween market, but in fact, it is corporate pedophilia. The aim of corporate pedophilia is to make young people feel inferior and defective by using images that are unattainable. And these images are used against consumers for the rest of their lives to keep them feeling inadequate. Unless they buy their products and stick with their brands. The fashion industry is the same. Wear this, and you might fit in. Look like this, and you will be attractive and popular. Like the people in these gossip magazines. These people are called celebrities. Where do we begin? While it is natural for a person to become popular for being the best at what they do, today in the West, you are a celebrity if you simply appear on screen. Any screen, even by mistake. You get credibility and praise for nothing. And the more you appear, the bigger a celebrity you become. 
If you become a big enough celebrity, then you become a brand to be sold and traded like any other product. Meet Miss Kim Kardashian. She is famous for owning some clothes shops and going shopping. She wears diamonds and fur because they are symbols of wealth in the West. And because she believes she is superior to other humans, she ignores the true cost of these luxuries. This celebrity is called Madonna. She recently started a trend of shopping for children in third world countries, which gained her enormous publicity. She adopted one of the millions of poor black children in America who have no home. But that would not have gotten her the attention she so desperately craved. Knock me off again. Okay, here we go. Let's see if this works. Hmm. Connecting. Connected now. Well. An athlete who has made millions of dollars from his image as an honest, dependent family man, even though the greedy golfer was also having sex with over a dozen waitresses, porn stars, and C-grade models at the same time. This is C-grade actor Mr. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Seen him with his wife when he was re-elected as governor of California. Unlike the other B-grade actor who served as governor of California, this actor won't be president because he fathered a child with the family maid in their marital bed. These actors are very big celebrities. Their names are Brad and Angelina, and their brand is Brangelina. They also shop for children in third world countries. Like other celebrities, they constantly complain about the media attention they get, even though they have entire teams of propagandists who alert the media each time they go shopping for children to purchase a coffee wearing the latest designer clothes. The truth is that celebrities like these are merely collaborators. For example, despite the fact that tobacco in the West is laced with more than 2,000 deadly chemicals designed to addict and kill humans, celebrities frequently appear in magazines, movies, and fashion shoots smoking cigarettes. Big tobacco pays these trained monkey collaborators of death enormous amounts to smoke and glamorize their products, knowing that the youth wants to be celebrities too. Nicole, don't do that, you promised. Sometimes, celebrity exacts a terrible toll on the human brain, leading to confusion and misery. This poor man is Michael Jackson, a very famous musician who recently died from a drug overdose. 
Let's look at what America did to this man. His ancestors were raped from Africa and brought to America as slaves. And his childhood was spent working and performing for a violent father who colluded with record companies to profit from his talents. So much pain at the hand of capitalism leads to an identity crisis. These disturbing images are not film trickery, but the result of a practice known as plastic surgery. In surveys, 9 out of 10 women in the West are unhappy with their appearance which drives them to spend enormous amounts of money buying cosmetics, clothes, and plastic surgery, despite the fact that they will never become celebrities or look like the models in the advertisements. This is consumerism. Many of the biggest celebrities have no talent at all. This very famous woman is called Miss Katie Price. Her brand name is Jordan. And despite my research, it seems clear that she doesn't actually do anything. This is Miss Paris Hilton. This narcissistic parasite comes from a wealthy hotel family. She glorifies her opulent lifestyle without guilt and is said to charge $150,000 to appear at parties. She even has a TV program called My New Best Friend Forever, where people compete to be her new best friend. Proof that anything in the West can be reproduced and commodified for profit. This is part of a trend in the West for what is called reality television. A type of freak show programming about talentless narcissists who like to talk about themselves and go shopping. In the field of American reality TV, competition is fierce for the most grotesque example of such exploitation. There are shows like The Swan, where women who are deemed ugly enter a plastic surgery competition to see who can be turned into the most beautiful. She's just very masculine, face, body, basically everywhere. So we really need to change her body with a lot of liposuction, breast augmentation. We really need to feminize her face by doing a brow lift, rhinoplasty, take the fat out of her cheeks and her chin. She really deserves to be in this program. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. This one is called My Super 316, where children have tens of thousands of dollars spent on them simply because they are turning 16. They are treated like celebrities, despite the fact that they have achieved nothing and are out of touch with reality. And if you're ready, but this is nothing compared to a reality series called The Bachelor, where a handsome, wealthy young man declares his commitment to picking a wife from a bevy of 16 potential brides. His sincerity in talking to each woman is chilling, as are their claims to love him. After sampling all of the potential brides, he decides who to marry turning the most personal decisions into a commodity.
experience being manipulated, packaged, and sold worldwide. Distraction techniques like television and celebrity magazines are the propagandist's best tools for keeping people from thinking and talking about important issues. Now, they have another. The games industry now generates more money than the film industry and has cemented the West as a culture of death, violence, and destruction. This is Grand Theft Auto 4. Here, you can kill anything that moves and have sex with prostitutes. This game appeals so much to people, it sold half a billion dollars worth of units in its first week of sale. Because gaming and animation desensitizes violence and death, much of the billions in military spending goes into recruiting young, poor, and uneducated people to fight their Fortune 500 wars using these same techniques. Entertainment. 
want to be on top?
Between 2001 and 2009, the number of deaths from terrorism in America stood at 3,000. In the same period, there were 192,000 deaths by homicide, 204,000 drunk driving, 360,000 suicide, 456,000 second-hand smoke. 8,723,728,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,
My name's Jason, and I used to be just a good old average American kid living in upstate New York. There's me. I played baseball, mastered Mortal Kombat, went to the prom, said the Pledge of Allegiance every day, and loved my country. I even lived the dream of every American youth, college. Sure, it was a state school, but it also happened to be a party town. Great times all around, right? Well, sort of. I still had to work hard as a pizza guy to make it. And of course, there was school. I had to figure out the computer graphics programs I was working with, as well as attend classes I didn't care about. I certainly didn't know much about geopolitics. Then 9-11 happened, and everything changed. I was pissed. How dare the Muslim extremists massacre all those people? But was it all true? Prior to the invasion of Iraq, something didn't seem right. I then did a startling thing. I actually took a look at what happened that terrible September day. What I found horrified and angered me to such an extent that I took action. We were lied to and lied to big time. Before I knew it, I went from a normal college student to the political guy at the party to one of the guys that brought you the first internet blockbuster, Loose Change. The film would not only change my life, but countless others as well. If you've ever seen Loose Change, the documentary about September 11th's conspiracy theorist documentary, it is riveting. Well, like, you watch it, and by the end, of, not even the end, 10 minutes in, you're like, you got your car packed, your head. <laughs> you're just like, oh my God, it's all true. So every place, there's questions coming from this documentary. And you don't have to believe everything in the documentary to still have questions come up. And you look back and you remember what you saw and what you were told, and now you have questions. We got the boogeyman out there. See, wow. for many years it was communism, then it was the war on drugs, now it's the war on terror. All through our life we've had to have a boogeyman. Loose Change took the truth about 9-11 into the mainstream with over 100 million views and allowed me to travel the country and even take on some of my detractors. The answer is no, they cannot. Okay. I think it's, it's telling that every time you disagree with something, you call the people a liar. I'm not calling anybody a liar, sir. I'm calling you a liar because you are a liar. But if we were lied to about 9-11, then who was really behind it? A lot of people on the web were pointing towards the new world order. But that was... I'm making this video for people that come to my page that keep claiming Hitler was demonized and he was really a hero and he was fighting the elites. You people are completely deceived. Hitler was no angel, and he was working with them. He was just part of the puppet show. The world's a stage it always has been. There's good guys and bad guys on paper and on TV, but they're all working together. Now, you see the connection here with Hitler and the Pope. Okay, now let's take a look at some more of this imagery. 
Do you see these Nazi German iron crosses? Do you understand what this represents? Here's a larger image. Okay? Iron cross. But what it really is, for those that don't get it, is nothing more than an Illuminati pyramid. A 2D pyramid hidden in plain sight. But you'll see the connection with the Vatican and Nazi Germany. Hidden pyramid in plain sight. Everything has always been right in front of your eyes. These people have just been blinded. See the connection? Pretty obvious. Pope Benedict, a Nazi youth, people say, oh, that's this info. That's not true. This is just a, uh, a kid that looks like Pope Benedict when he was a kid. Well, here you go. For all, the, all you that trust your media, now what do you got to say? ABC News, even though put it out there, he was a Hitler youth in his past. Yeah. Now I want to know what you're going to say about that. And they worship the cube. They worship the cube and the pyramid. Here they are with the pyramid. And hidden pyramids in plain sight. Well, they blinded. They can't see what's right in front of them. This Reebok logo, nothing but a two-dimensional pyramid from the top view. It's a three-sided pyramid. There's also four-sided, which I'll show right here with this Arco logo. People look at this all the time. They have no clue they're looking at, just like Chrysler, that logo as well. You're looking at a 4D pyramid. Pyramids in plain sight. Hidden, hidden in plain sight, like I always say. I'm going to finish off again. All on the same team. All working together like they have in the past and they still are today. There's nothing new under the sun. So I set out to find out if the New World Order really existed. And if it did, what was it? Who was involved? And what were their goals? The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically, opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. But we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy. It is a system which has restricted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit highly efficient machine. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silent, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. Some cringe when they hear the term New World Order, despite all of these prominent people using it. Maybe some people dreamt of at that conference back in Bournemouth when it looked as if maybe history would end, that liberal democracy would triumph, that free market economics would slowly progress, and we'd have a new world order. 
And together they helped to create, were the principal leaders in creating, a new world order and a winning strategy in the Cold War. We are part of a new world order. And as the recently departed Admiral William J. Crow once said, it's long on new and it's short on order. Walter Isaacson wrote a wonderful book about some of the wise men who helped shape the new world order following the Second World War. As we devise a way forward in Iraq, I urge the international community to embrace its responsibility for creating that new world order, a new world order based upon collective action. The transatlantic partnership was never just the foundation of our security. It was the foundation of our way of life. It was forged an experience of the most bitter and anguished kind. Out of it came a new Europe, a new world order, a new consensus as to how life should and could be lived. And just like that, it was gone. It was, the, it was a new world order. That's what President George H. Bush said. Harvard historian Francis Fukuyama pronounced the end of history. In fact, when it is used, that person is often dismissed out of hand because of the perception that it is nothing more than a conspiracy theory. Actually, the idea of global governance in a one world order has been around for centuries, and the term new world order has been used frequently in recent history. The new world order means different things to different people, um, but to those who expect to be in control of it, it means the same thing. It means all the world under their control. They believe that somebody must rule. After all, people are too darn dumb to know how to rule themselves. They figured that that's their role. The first in-depth publication of note was Samuel Zane Batten's work, The New World Order, which was published in 1919. Under the cloak of Christianity, this order speaks of a new world rising and advocates social control over all people and all resources. It promotes a world federation with a world parliament, an international court, and a global police force. Some of its goals are as follows. Community. The danger and loss in crime and degeneracy. The determination to make community life safe, sanitary, wholesome, and moral. Industrial. The disappearance of class distinctions and the solidarity of all interests in the economic process. National. The conception of the nation's welfare as the supreme concern with the policy that everything shall contribute to this end, and every person must do some useful work. International. The creation of an international mind with a world consciousness and a world patriotism. The destruction of every arbitrary power that can separately and of its single choice disturb the peace of the world. Well, government is good, right? It put an end to war. Well, it could put an end to war because you just only have one dictator. <laughs> I think Adolf Hitler had that in mind. He wanted a world government, too, uh, with himself as the master leader. Many have regarded Hitler as the apex of evil, a true heart of darkness. But how many people know that Hitler had his own vision of a new world order? 
Hitler had been promoted by the establishment. He graced the cover of Time magazine many times and was their man of the year twice. His vision was simple, unify Europe and then the world. The only real difference was that his order was racially motivated instead of being based solely on religion. He even wrote a lesser known follow-up to Mein Kampf in 1928 that many have dubbed My Order or New World Order. President Roosevelt would condemn this order prior to World War II. Ah, he didn't write Mein Kampf. The Jesuits did. The Jesuit puppet. We'll go back to that. It's fun listening to this stuff once in a while. A little frustrating as well. Head off off the occult, satanic, satanic lightning bolt symbolism. All right. Like I've stated many times, they're going to tell us lies in the news and a history channel, but they're going to tell us the truth in movies. Take a listen. Dr. Jones, you must understand that this is all strictly confidential. Um, <clears throat> yesterday afternoon, uh, European infection intercepted the German communicator sent from Cairo to the Pacific. Over the last two years, the Nazis and the teams of archaeologists running around the world looking for all kinds of religious artifacts. It was a nothing He's obsessed with the occult. Again, truth in movies, lies in the news, and the History Channel. Now, to understand the occult and symbolism, what Confucius once said, signs and symbols rule the world, not words nor law. Now, going back to the Bible, from Luke chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus states, And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And the reason, you'll see the lightning bolt throughout history with these false gods. Example right here with Thor, with the lightning bolt, symbolism everywhere. And with Zeus here holding the lightning bolt. Of course, Anton LaVey, a huge symbol in Satanism is that lightning bolt. Because, of course, that lightning bolt represents Satan, as stated in the Bible. The Romans, the lightning bolt. Again, now getting back to Hitler and the occult, the reason the lightning bolt is incorporated with all these logos. So for anybody that not understand that Hitler was not in the occult, you're deeply deceived all over the place. And the reason for three lightning bolts, that's Satan three times, basically 666. And even with Russia, the world's a stage. It's us against them. It's, it's the people against the world leaders who are one. In Russia, with this lightning bolt, this old propaganda picture, or uh, I should say poster, 
I look at some imagery of today. You see the Lightning Bolt Incorporated. So much imagery. The Puma, this Puma ad, you see the Lightning Bolt, the All-Seeing Eye, and the Pyramid, and a Lightning Bolt. Walt Disney, the movie Bolt, the Lightning Bolt. Of course, Disney was a Freemason. Board with lightning bolt. The scroll to these images. Nissan's lightning bolt. This old uh, cigarette ad. You get the pyramid lightning bolt. Virginia Slims. Western Electric holding the lightning bolt. More symbolism. Comedian Dean Cook, Lightning Bolt, incorporated with his T-shirt. 311 band, of course, 311, 33, the Lightning Bolt right dead center. ACDC, Highway to Hell, and the Lightning Bolt. Lily Allen, I mean, I keep going on and on. Anthrax, Lightning Bolt, and in plain sight. I'm going to scroll through all these images here. You see a lightning bolt. It's part of society. The, the satanic society that the elite have created. Don't think people don't understand what's taking place here. They think, oh, no, the lightning bolt is just a, a, a cool symbol. That's why they use it. No. They don't just use it because it looks cool. And the Foo Fighters music and the Lightning Bolt Genesis. Some of the Goldman's Lightning Bolt T-shirt, the Grateful Dead, the Red and Blue Lightning Bolt Dead Center, Grandmaster Flash. They love that, you know, like Flash Gordon as well. Well, you can see all these images. Lady Gaga, basically a ripoff of David Bowie using that lightning bolt. The lightning bolt Christmas tree. Marilyn Manson, of course. Metallica with the dual lightning bolt. Ride the lightning, basically ride with Satan. All over the place. Yoko Ono. You know, people can't see how symbolism rules, like Confucius said. We're getting the point here. Just going to scroll through some images. Now, let's take a look. I have more imagery here, explaining a little bit of this. Of course, Nickelodeon, their logo. You need to realize the meaning, the reason for the name Nickelodeon. Getting off subject here. But Nickelodeon, Nick is short. You know, like with Christmas, they have St. Nick. But let me uh, do a quick search here.
will understand what's taking place. Right here, you know, when you look at the, defini the definition of the devil and some of the old uh, names going back in time, Old Scratch, The Stranger, Old Nick. Old Nick is another name for Satan. So again, you're going to have this These hidden occultic names. Getting off subject here, I know, but this is something I want to touch upon with the deception of Santa Claus. Santa Claus has nothing to do with Christ or Christmas, but that name, Old Nick, Old Saint Nick, it's really the devil. We've been deceived completely. Society's been deceived. From the very start, born into deception, not understanding nothing. Now, getting back on the subject of lightning bolts with uh, nine-inch nails, with this, I guess it's a poster or album cover, I'm not sure what it is, but the meaning of nine-inch nails they say they use uh, nine-inch nails to crucify Christ. You get the nine for the nine-inch nails as mockery of Christ, and of course the lightning bolt, which represents Satan. More imagery here. Of course, the satanic church with a lightning bolt in the upside-down pentagram. Lightning bolt with Pat Benatar, that necklace. Again with Lady Gaga, David Bowie. So, I don't want this to drag on too long, but just so people understand the bottom line when people say Hitler wasn't into the occult, and you see these images, like I showed earlier here, let me scroll back up. So many, so many uh, images here. Again, tell me Hitler was not in, into the occult. Bottom line is, you see all the imagery all over the place, the lightning bolt. It's incorporated. So many ways in society only goes to show now, Hitler was a puppet, and the ones pulling him his strings were the occult. And for him to be in that position of power, he has to go along with the program. Thank you. 
Just before the 10th anniversary of 9-11, new footage has emerged, leaked out by a whistleblower that seems to show a cruise missile hitting the Pentagon. Backing up what conspiracy theorists have been saying for years, for an hour after the incident the roof of the Pentagon had not collapsed. Photos taken at the time shows a small round punch hole cleanly cut into the reinforced concrete. What is striking about the images, it looks like very little damage considering a full passenger airliner has crashed here. There are no signs of a plane anywhere in the images. It does however look like a missile punch hole. After the roof had collapsed the damage looks much worse and some could be mistaken that a plane did indeed cause the damage. But when you superimpose a plane over the damage, you would be right in thinking the damage and plane debris should have been far greater. But if there never was any plane then the images make a lot more sense. Let's go back and look at the footage. Thank you. 
controlled mainstream media propaganda arms. There is far too much control to let this be shown to the masses. Here is what a reporter saw on the pattern. I mean, it was like a, a cruise missile with wings right there and slammed right into the Pentagon. Huge explosion, a uh, great ball of fire. Wow, he saw a missile. And one of the 9-11 commissioners slips up on CNN letting slip a missile hit the Pentagon. Worried, uh, especially when I was uh, standing in front of the Pentagon that night seeing one of our uh, fortresses pried open by a missile uh, airplane, uh, thinking about uh, the number of people that probably died on the plane and on the ground. Inside job. Ten years on, we must demand a new independent investigation. Thank you for watching this video. Please subscribe if you have not already. Also find us on Facebook. Just more evidence proving Ken Hovind is completely wrong about his stance with the ball earth. Now understand one simple thing. This man's using science books to prove his point. Another point I want to make is a lot of people are saying in the comment section of my other videos about Ken Hovind, where he's claiming the earth is a ball. He's talked about this before he was supposedly in prison for the last 10 years. He's mentioned the flat earth, ball earth debate before. So this is nothing new with them. So it's no excuse. Now let's take a look at the video. Let's break it down. And, um, talks about the current teaching. Shouldn't he be teaching by the Bible? Listen some more. Exactly by Satanists, you know, 
Um, the photograph records, they, they have records, they have lyrics in reverse for a reason. Practice speaking backwards, to read backwards. They say the Lord's Prayer backwards. It's all mockery. And again, more biblical evidence. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He also made the stars. Now, you see this moon during the day. If the sun is hitting this moon, according to science, the entire moon should be illuminated, but it's not. Why is that? That's because the moon is a light, like the Bible says. Perfect illustration. This image here. You see the moon. It's only half lit. Okay? Now you see the sun reflecting off this jet fighter. This whole moon, if it's according to science, should be illuminated all the way around, not partially. This goes to show you as the Bible states, that the sun and the moon are both light, and the moon is a lesser light, or imagery. Again, should be fully illuminated if the sun is reflecting off the moon. Now, more evidence. Taking a look at the moon at night. You see this image here I got from a friend that she took just last night. Now, what do you see here that's missing? You don't see any sunlight, any sun rays hitting the moon. This should be illuminated if light is striking, like a flashlight. There, be, there should be a source of light. This is only common sense. Okay? Now, the moon gives enough light to the clouds. You don't see any light hitting off, hitting the moon. That's why. Or why is that? It's because, again, the moon is a light source. It's the lesser light. More imagery. This is an actual photo of the moon at night. Again, it's illuminated, but you don't see any light source hitting it. Now, another point I want to make with the lie that science, science is nothing but a satanic deception, you see this image of Earth, supposed Earth, the ball, the big lie. It's 23.4 degrees on its axis, okay? Now, look at this. This is science for you. It's 66.6 six, it's degrees up being horizontal. Again, this is this goes to show that science is nothing more than a satanic, satanic deception. Those that rule this world, those that control this world, have manipulated the masses. And again, Ken Hovind is nothing but a deceiver. Take a look at this image here. Let me fix this of the moon at night again. Now again, like I said, you don't see any light source hitting off the moon. Complete darkness above and below. Again, 
It's a light source. Case closed. Ken Hovind, you can take your ball and go home. Um, he's kind of loud, he's, he's dressed nice, and 
then he sits at the bar next to us and you start talking with him. And uh, before you know it, you know, one thing led to another. He's buying us drinks and he's talking about us coming to hang out with him all night. So we're like, great. I tracked down Leonard Ryberg, the wealthy boat owner they met that night. We were down at the marina, my regular crew and I would come back in, go out on, on the water on my, on my 38 foot fishing boat, vessel boat. Rick and Hans kind of joined up with us, started having some cocktails. They were talking about how they wanted to go scuba diving. So I told them, I said, you know, we're going back out later tonight. You know, if you guys want to come party with us tonight, then, you know, I could push you in the water tomorrow morning. There's a couple of reefs down there, you know, refuge in the hive. As long as you bring us up some lobsters for lunch, it's all good. I'm figuring, you know, hey, you got somebody to die for lobsters for me. It is on March 27th of 1980 that Old River McKeever died on the island, a sunken wreck that had been there for years. All the locals knew about it. They had done it a half dozen times before, whenever they could cause their way onto a boat for free. But this dive would be their last. It's really early in the morning. I'm pretty, pretty heavily hungover, so I'm not sure. And, uh... I say, hey, it's time to do this. Let's go ahead. Let's just make this happen. It went out to sea around 9 a.m. A half hour later, they are 90 feet above the wreck of the island. It really was a beautiful day. It was a gorgeous day. The visibility is about probably 30 to 60 feet. Um, maybe at times even better than that. Halfway down, we're feeling good, feeling better as we're, as we're heading down. We get to the bottom, and we start searching for lobsters. We were very close together because, you know, being dive partners, you know, that's how we were taught, and we were, you know, basically within about five to seven feet at all times. But we heard this strange, like, war come out of nowhere. Hans and Rick know the ocean is filled with incredible mystery and danger, but what they are about to witness is beyond imagination. After a night of partying in Santa Barbara Harbor, Hans Ulrich and Rick McKeever dive to a wreck 90 feet below to find lobster for lunch, but they are not alone. I'm not sure where this war came from, whether it was on the surface or it was from the boat moving or shifting or there was something on the ground or behind us. So I look at him, he's looking at me, and, you know, I'm thinking, like, don't panic. You know, I'm, we generally don't get scared because we say a lot, but this was really loud and it was really strange. So we look around, we can't see anything, and we continue on looking for losses for this guy. Within about, I would say, probably 30 seconds, uh, they experience like a thermal climb. If you're not familiar with that, that's when, you know, the, the temperature of the water changes. But this was extreme. And simultaneously with this happening, the water visibility started to go down a bit. 
suddenly, the two divers sense something behind them. McKeever turns and looks and shows immediate signs of physical panic. Before Oprah can wheel around, something takes up McKeever. Something just came out of nowhere violently. It rushed me as it, as it, as it, as it came by and it, it attacked me. It literally ripped him away from his position. And when it happened, it was so violent that the turbulence was like a wave. It was, it was like a wave hitting me. And all of a sudden it was like just red around me. And I couldn't see Rick. And I'm starting to really freak out at this point. I'm looking around. I don't see him. All I see is red. I'm looking frantically to my friends. And he's nowhere to be found. Before I knew it, my heart was beating so loud. It was just in my eardrums, just pounding away. That mixed with the current and the red water, I was literally panicked out of my mind. And I had to gather myself together. I said, I got to get out of here now. On, I'm not going to get out of here. I was freaking petrified. I managed to make it about three quarters of the way up. Some kind of courage in me told me, look for Rick. Just take one last look. And he was nowhere to be found. There was nothing there.
His wetsuit is shredded. His regulator hose torn, and his tank severely scraped. It had all been found on the ocean floor about a hundred yards from the hull of the Allen. Also discovered is a massive talon with a hunk of fleshy cuticle still attached. The claw measures nine inches along the curve. The search and rescue team seems as in awe of it as the young photographer does. I asked if it was a form of a shark tooth, and uh, they didn't know. And uh, even if it was, it was still nine inches long, and that would make this animal a total freak of nature. I believe Hans Ulbricht's account, and now I've seen Van Aston's photographs. What was this creature? A new, undiscovered species? Or an ancient one? I'm not sure. A diver has been killed, and TV news photographer Lee Van Aston has captured evidence of a strange cause for this incident. I immediately realized I had uh, some once-in-a-lifetime uh, pictures. And when I noticed that uh, the police were coming, I, uh, I just headed back straight to my car and got out of there. I went back to the dark room to get those uh, films developed for the uh, 11 p.m. news. Then at 7.30, some guy in a suit showed up at the news station uh, looking to talk to the manager. That um, they left with the, the, uh, the films, any pictures I, I was able to develop as well as negatives. Despite having gathered information on what appears to be a compelling story, the station doesn't run anything on it at 11. They do report on it the next day, but the incident is described as a boating mishap, with no emphasis on the massive violence McKeever suffered. The news station and the search team refuse to answer any further questions about it. As the weeks go by, a traumatized Hans Ulbricht falls into a deep depression. It was really... It was really starting to get to me. I mean, I, I couldn't even make my best friend's funeral. I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. Um, I had no desire to die. I mean, I had lost what, what felt like my lust for life. Um, along with my best friend, it's just a horrifying memory of, uh, of that day. The way the newspapers reported the story was just a, a complete sham. I mean, they, they got it so wrong. I mean, they called it a, a boating accident. I mean, this was not a boating accident. This was, this was something much more. I started to feel obligated to get the truth to the surface. Ulbricht seeks out a reporter from the Santa Barbara Herald Leader, a small local paper. It's a fairly reputable publication and known to be a little more aggressive about the stories it would get behind. You know, I almost felt like I was being mocked, honestly, when the guy had first come up because he was young. I noticed something different about this reporter. 
he actually looked like he was listening to me. And he was writing stuff down. He wasn't dismissing me. This guy was believing me. For the first time since the incident, or whatever you would call it, I had somebody to believe my story. I get a phone call out of the room one night. I pick up the phone. There's a strange voice on the other end of the line. I can't place this voice, but it doesn't sound good. This guy tells me, listen, you need to shut your mouth. And I'm frozen. Normally I would tell somebody like this to go to hell. And he starts mentioning my family's names, their full names, and their addresses. Nobody knows about my family. Nobody knows anything about, you know, where we're from. So I'm quite taken aback, and I'm scared at this point. He tells me I need to shut my mouth, get all of my together, and get the hell out of town. Now, at that point, I decide this is real, and something really big is happening here that's bigger than you. Next morning I get up, I pack up everything I have, I put it in my car, and I roll out of Santa Barbara, content to leave the whole damn thing behind me. I, at this point, for the first time, am comfortable to speak about it again. Ulbricht's leaving town may have been motivated by more than fear. Neighbors say he departed in a new car, which he never could have afforded given the financial hardships he describes. California Motor Vehicle Records show that he indeed owned it. Where did that money come from? The oceanside town of Santa Barbara, California, has been shaken by the disturbing death of young diver Rick McKeever. Just when it appears that the whole matter is going to blow over, a man's disappearance and presumed death, evidence of a cryptozoological creature, and what is clearly a cover-up, a shuttle boat sinks while departing the deep drilling rig of Alessa, six miles off the Santa Barbara coast. The sinking is preceded by a short, harrowing distress call. Mayday, mayday, mayday. This is giving us. We just need a ram. There are no survivors. The Huguenot is a 40-foot vessel used to transport administrative personnel, documents, and small cargo to and from the platform. Robert Corso knows the boat well. He works on Blue Velasco loading and unloading transports during the period in question. Huguenot was some three miles out from the Blue Velasco when he sent out distress signals and they ran. Oddly, the area is immediately declared restricted, and civilian craft coming to help are waved off by the growing fleet of Navy and Coast Guard vessels. The ship had been uh, broken into a lot, of, a lot of pieces, which sort of confirmed uh, the report that uh, she'd been rammed. Although that's very, very deep water there. I can't imagine what they would have run into. 
the crew and everybody were lost. Uh, I think the next day, uh, Human Lake uh, floated to the surface, and that was it. They never found anybody. It seems too much of a coincidence that this occurrence is in the vicinity of Blue Velocity Trilling Station. The state of the art went here earlier and has technology to drill in waters two miles deep, the deepest in the world at this time. And the geologists on board found the drilling experience to be unusual. We were walking off the Channel Islands, drilling in about 1,500 feet of water. And then it was about a few thousand feet of sediment to death. And what happened was is we found this very rare pocket of Silurian limestone. And Silurian, you know, that period of time is like 430 million years ago. And so it's really neat to find these because they do end up being really huge caves. As we drill down through these layers, then with Pacific Coast and the plate set up being unstable anyway, it, it just all these pressure vectors, if you will, created this collapse of the cavern. In the days following the rupture in this cavern, crew members report hearing strange sounds at night, almost like a whale, but more aggressive something akin to a grinding foghorn. Not long after, Rick releases untimely ends. The Navy knows there is something in the water. They briefly track a large sonar signature, having motion consistent with that of a sea creature. It's 45 feet in length. The Navy quickly releases 15 trained attack dolphins into the area. Attack dolphins are mainly used to, um, to patrol, you know, harbor areas looking for enemy divers. Uh, they're just like security guards, you know. They just monitor the areas, look for signs of trouble. Uh, they are armed with a snout-mounted hypodermic glass with a CO2 charge, which they're able to inject and just immediately blast right into a body. And uh, when they do ram that into their victim, the embolizing effect just grows them in death. Ostensibly, the dolphins identify their enemy from the scent provided by the detached talon clown near McKeever's gear. No one knows how it all transpired in the depths of the ocean, but it must have been one hell of a battle. Of the original 15, only nine dolphins returned, all of which have discharged their weapons. The dolphins give the signal to their handlers that they have found and killed the target. Analysis of the claw eventually yields a best guess as to its origin. It is thought to come from a creature resembling a massive Montiel Tosukasaruga composi, but with longer limbs and more agile claws. Its behavior also shows an uncanny intelligence. But for now, the waters would be quiet. Until, in late August of the same year, this 8mm film appears. It was shot in late spring by a Mexican fishing boat operating in the Gulf. The decayed mass in its nest appears to be the head and upper torso of a huge creature. 
its single remaining forelimb dangles, showing massive claws similar to the one recovered in the Makila incident. Contained in the fleshy mass are two leathery eggs the size of human heads. After shooting the grainy footage of their catch, the fishermen dump the whole lot, including the eggs, back into the sea. scientists were free to ask any question, to pursue any line of inquiry without fear of reprisal. But recently, I've been alarmed to discover that this is not the case. It all began when I met evolutionary biologist Richard Sternberg in Washington, D.C. His life was nearly ruined when he strayed from the party line while serving as editor of a scientific journal affiliated with the prestigious Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Your office was over there? That's correct. This here is the West Wing. Directly ahead of us is the 
West Wing is the National History Museum. But now you're not there anymore because you're a bad boy. No, I'm not. No, I was I was exiled. You're a bad boy. You question the power. What was Dr. Sternberg's crime? He dared to publish an article by Dr. Stephen Meyer, one of the leading lights of the intelligent design movement. The paper ignited a firestorm of controversy merely because it suggested intelligent design might be able to explain how life began. As a result, Dr. Sternberg lost his office, his political and religious beliefs were investigated, and he was pressured to resign. The questioning of Darwinism was was a, a bridge too far for many. The mentioning of intelligent design that occurs at the end of the paper was was over the top. And I think the intelligent design proponents have raised a number of very important questions. And you wanted to get those questions brought up and discussed. Placed on, placed on the table. Placed on the table. People were so upset about it. They were so upset that you could see their, they had a physical, emotional reaction. Wow. They were saying that Stephen C. Meyer is a well-known Christian, that Stephen C. Meyer is an intelligent design proponent, that Stephen C. Meyer is a Republican. It was all couched in terms of religion, politics, and sociology. The way the chair of the department uh, put it is that I was viewed as an intellectual terrorist. Terrorist. Because of giving the topic of intelligent design some modicum of credibility. What happened to Dr. Sternberg was terrible, but surely it was just an isolated case. I was still pretty skeptical, so naturally I checked in with the head of the Skeptic Society, Michael Shermer. So I can't prove there is no God or Yahweh in your case any more than I can prove there is no Isis, Zeus, Apollo, Brahma, Ganesha, Mithras, Allah, or for that matter, the flying spaghetti monster. And, and think about just one thing. Why would the aliens look like this? Well, that's, These are who bipedal. Do that? Who do that? Skepticism, it's not a position you take. It's just an approach to claim. This one is called the borderlands of science, yeah. where sense meets nonsense. Is intelligence design nonsense? Well, it's unproven. So in that sense, it's nonsense. So I would put it in the in the sort of shaded areas between good, solid science and total nonsense. You know, it's sort of three-quarters of the way toward the nonsense side. But you think, nevertheless, people should be allowed to speak about and publish papers about it? They are free to write and publish and be heard in public forums and go to conferences just like everybody else does. Well, what if a person published something, say, at the Smithsonian, in favor of intelligent design and lost his job over it? And it had been peer reviewed, it had been peer reviewed, and published, and then he lost his job over it anyway. What would happen? What yeah, well, that situation? I, I think that particular situation, there was something else going on. What was that, going on? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know because I don't know. But I, uh, I think there was had to be something. People don't get fired over something like that. You roll up your sleeves, you get to work, you do the research, you get your grants, you get you get your data, you publish, and you work your butt off, and that's how you get your theories taught. Well, but wait a minute. What if you try and try and roll up your sleeves and go to work and work your butt off, and they say, well, we're going to fire you if you can mention the word intelligence design? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's happening. Where is that happening? 
George Mason University. Throughout its 50-year history, our mission has remained clear to prepare a diverse population of students to think and to grow in a climate of unbridled academic freedom. After Dr. Caroline Crocker simply mentioned intelligent design in her cell biology class at George Mason University, her promising academic career came to an abrupt end. My supervisor invited me into his office. He said, I'm going to have to discipline you for teaching creationism. And I said, I mentioned intelligent design on a couple of slides, but I did not teach creationism. He said, nonetheless, you have to be disciplined. At the end of the semester, I lost my job. Not only did this well-loved professor lose her job at George Mason, she suddenly found herself blacklisted, unable to find a job anywhere. So whenever I interviewed for a job, I would be offered it usually on the spot. Since this has happened, and since people can Google my name, I'm finding that when I send my credentials, I do get interviews, I get many interviews, but I never get offered a job. I don't tell them about my, about my uh, science sin. I was only trying to teach what the university stands for, which is academic freedom. There's nothing to be learned in neurosurgery by assuming uh, an accidental origin for the, the parts of the brain that we work on. It wasn't just biologists who were feeling the Darwinist wrath. When neurosurgeon Michael Egmore wrote an essay to high school students saying doctors didn't need to study evolution in order to practice medicine, the Darwinists were quick to try and exterminate this new threat. A lot of people on a lot of blogs called me um, unprintable names that were printed. <laughs> there are a lot of very, very nasty comments. Um, other people suggested that people call the university I work at and uh, suggested perhaps it's time for me to retire. I realized when I kind of went public with, with my doubts about the adequacy of Darwin's theory uh, that uh, now that I would have kind of criticism. Uh, what has uh, amazed me is the uh, uh, viciousness and the sort of uh, baseness of it. I'm an old guy. I have uh, tenure, academically safe, but the young people and what, what is happening to them in America right now because of this scientism law is, uh, is really terrible. Apparently, Professor March was not as safe as he thought. A few months after this interview, Baylor University shut down his research website and forced him to return grant money once they discovered a link between his work and intelligent design. In order to attract grants, you have to market yourself. So you put up sites and call yourself labs and groups and things like that in order to get visibility. And in my entire experience in academia, I never went to any superior and asked them any permission to put up any of these labs. So uh, the fact that this was singled out, let alone shut down, is jaw-dropping. It's astonishing. I have never been uh, treated like this in my about 30 years in academia. Shut up, you freak! I say shut up! It's a If you peel back the onion, I think that there's no doubt that the center of this is my work and what would some would call intelligent design. People really get emotional about this. Uh, when you were to say intelligent design in, in a room of academics, them's fighting words. Creationists. Astronomer Guillermo Gonzalez 
found himself in a fierce shootout with Iowa State University following the publication of his book, arguing that the universe is intelligently designed. Despite a stellar research record that has led to the discovery of several planets, his application for tenure was denied, putting his career in jeopardy. I worried about my tenure a little bit in 2005 when the petition was being circulated because uh, I viewed that as a strategy of Hector Avalos and his associates to try to poison the atmosphere on campus against me because he knew I didn't know it wasn't tenured yet and I was very vulnerable. I have a little doubt that I would have tenure now uh, if I hadn't done any professional work on intelligent design. Dr. Gonzalez had this advice for scientists who might be thinking about following his example. If they value their careers, <laughs> they should keep quiet about their intelligent design views. We know there are times and places to be quiet, and other times and places when we can make noise if we want to. Will you show us? Of course. Boys and girls, how would you like to show some of the ways we know of being quiet? It's the kind of thing where you just learn to keep the mouth shut. In addition to those scientists who were willing to appear on camera, we encountered many more who didn't dare show their face for fear of losing their jobs. You use an intelligent design perspective to get the research done, but you're not allowed to talk about it in public. And so there is definitely incentive, if you think about it, for people to remain within the mainstream. You know, what, what's he up to? What is he thinking? Is he one of them? That kind of thing. If I write intelligent design, they hear creationism. They hear religious right. They hear theocracy. So it appears Mr. Shermer, the self-styled skeptic, was wrong on this one. Intelligent design was being suppressed in a systematic and ruthless fashion. But maybe intelligent design should be suppressed. I didn't like what was happening to these scientists, but on the other hand, we don't want our kids being taught that the Earth is flat or that the Holocaust never happened. It was time to ask the scientific establishment what was so bad about intelligent design. Intelligent design people are not genuine scientists. Intelligent design is a racket. It's just propaganda. The only intelligent thing about it is to got people to call it that. It's really very stupid as well. Huh? Everybody knows science education in America is appalling. What we don't need at this time is intelligent design in the classrooms. To present intelligent design stunts their educational growth. It stunts their intellectual growth. But what I don't understand is how these animals could have been on Earth millions of years before man. And the Bible says the whole Earth was created in only six days. It wasn't just the educational aspects of intelligent design that had scientists concerned. Many suspected the movement masked a much larger agenda. Intelligent design is a set of excuses to squeeze creationism into the classrooms. Get intelligent design in the schools today, and you can have school prayers tomorrow. Any other complaints? Can you imagine anything more boring? The boredom attached to ID is supreme. It is so boring that I can't even bother to think about it much it's just utterly boring. Love it in the air. Everywhere I look around. Love it in the air. Every sight and every sound. Love was in the air, all right, but none of it was directed toward intelligent design. There seemed to be a lot to hate about ID, 
and nearly all of that hatred was focused on one place. The people in the, in, in, from the Discovery Institute, the people who are doing the intelligent design, they're all varnish and no product. The Discovery Institute is a propaganda mill. It's, it's, a, it's an institution designed to suck in money from religious investors and turn it into a sanitized, somewhat secular version of the creation story to get it into the schools. If they have a way of understanding nature that's superior to the one that we all are making lots of discoveries using, great. Bring it on. We are really, really lost. I think it's on third. I think it's on third and it's down there. I have no idea where this place is. Do you have any idea where the Discovery Institute is? Have you ever heard of that? Never heard of that. Okay, thank you. How are you, sir? Good. Do you have any idea where the Discovery Institute is? Not a clue. Discovery Institute. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Thank you, sir. It's got to be this whole building. Yes, where is the Discovery Institute? Okay, very good. Aha! Success at last. Aha! We found it. Are you Bruce Chapman? I am. How are you on the inside? Very kind of you to have me here. I'm delighted to meet you. Can I look around and see your office? Absolutely. Do you just have this floor or do you have several other floors as well? Oh, this is it. This is it. You've made an awful lot of trouble for being such a small office. I thought it was going to be like the Pentagon. You're like the little boy that said the emperor has no clothes. And um, he didn't have a big organization either. You, when you go around and raise funds, you, your people are not saying to them, by the way, we're going to get all these scientists out of the classroom and put... Christ back in the classroom. Well, I, I don't know that Christ has ever been in the science classroom. This is not a religious argument. This is something that people, uh, we, have, we have fellows who are Jewish or agnostic or, or various other things. There are people, there are, there are uh, Muslim scientists. There are people of all kinds of backgrounds who agree that Darwin's theory has failed. And so why would you bring religion into it? You don't need to religion. This is a red herring. And people who don't have an argument are reduced to throwing uh, sand in your eyes. Well, if the Discovery Institute could get its wish about this subject, what would you wish me? Well, on this subject, as on others, we'd like people to be able to have a robust uh, dialogue and even a debate where the evidence, the best evidence, that in this case, the best scientific evidence is, is made available to people. Well, surely no one questions there should be a debate. Oh, yes, they do. They do? They say the debate has been settled. Well, the issues well, settled. The debate settled. Ben, I'd like you to talk to the scientists. You don't want to get your science from me. Mr. Chapman claimed ID had nothing to do with religion. So why was my first stop Biola University, formerly known as the Bible Institute of Los Angeles? Your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares, your own 
personal Jesus someone to hear your prayer someone who's there How much money have you ever gotten from Jerry Falwell? Uh, zero dollars. How about Pat Robertson? Zero. Are you a minister? No. Are you a priest? No. Pastor? No. Youth pastor? No. <laughs> I did teach Sunday school once. Has this all been resolved? I mean, aren't we all Darwinists now? Except for a few cranks like you? Well, it's a funny thing that questions that aren't properly answered don't go away. This this question is is loaded with all kinds of political baggage, but one-on-one at a scientific meeting after the third or fourth beer, my experience has been that many evolutionary biologists will say, yeah, this theory's got a lot of problems. So you you mean to tell me that there really is a debate among scientists about whether or not evolution occurred? Well, evolution is a kind of funny word. It depends on how one defines it. If If it means simply change over time, even the most rock-ribbed fundamentalist knows that the history of the earth has changed, that there's been change over time. If you define evolution precisely, though, to mean the common descent of all life on earth from a single ancestor via undirected mutation and natural selection, that's textbook definition of neo-Darwinism. Biologists of the first rank have real questions. But the modern theory of intelligence design is just microwaved creationism. I don't think that's the case. Creationism properly understood begins with the Bible and says, how can I fit the Bible into the the data of science? Intelligent design doesn't do that. Intelligent design is the study of patterns in nature that are best explained as a result of intelligence. So intelligent designers believe that God is the designer? Not necessarily. Um, Intelligent design is a minimal commitment scientifically to the possibility of detecting intelligent causation. Dr. Nelson didn't sound like a crazy person, but I still suspected ID was nothing but reheated creationism. My next stop didn't seem like I was going to alleviate those fears. Evolution is a, from an intelligent design perspective, is perfectly acceptable. It's the sense is that this, how did the design get implemented? The issue is, is there real design there, and are these material mechanisms? like natural selection, are these adequate to account for everything we see in biology? And our argument is no, it's not. But Darwin produced all this evidence from his travels and his studies at the Galapagos that evolution explained things. If you look at the history of science, people often have a good idea and then they decide just to run with it. And they say, we're going to apply this everywhere. So Darwin takes his idea of natural selection and says, I'm going to explain all of life with it. I mean, physics used to be Newtonian physics. Newton was physics. And then you've got to look to Einstein, general relativity. It's not Newton is enough. Well, I think likewise what we're finding with Darwin is that he had some valid insights, but it's not the whole picture. Okay, Darwinism may not be the complete picture, but what made these guys think they had the missing pieces? 
I put this question to Dr. Stephen Meyer, author of the paper that originally got Dr. Sternberg in so much trouble. It's hard to believe that this little town is, of course, a giant Microsoft, which enabled Mr. Gates Corner at Westminster Abbey, right? That's correct. Yeah. Darwin is also buried in Westminster Abbey. Right. And so is Darwin. Right. Right near right. each other. Right. right. And you're here in Redmond in a little building without a sign. <laughs> right. And you're obviously an incredibly smart guy, but how dare you challenge someone who's buried in the Genius's Corner next to Newton at Westminster Abbey? Well, uh, it may seem a little cheeky, but it's what scientists are supposed to do. When I was in Cambridge, one of my supervisors often advised us to uh, beware the sound of one hand clapping, which was a way of saying if there's an argument on one side, mm-hmm. there's bound to be an argument on the other. And what I found in, in studying the structure of the argument in the origin of species is that for every evidence-based argument for one of Darwin's two key propositions, there is an evidence-based counter-argument. Well, but is it a debate? I mean, there's just you and a couple of other guys in a dinky little office going down, <laughs> say, on one side, and there's the faculties of all the great universities of the world on the other Speaking side. Speaking with a great uniform and yeah. authoritative voice. Right. Yeah. Well, in any case, the, the debate really isn't going to be settled by, by numbers. It's going to be settled by the evidence and the arguments. While I was still in Bill Gates' country, Dr. Meyer recommended I check in with molecular biologist Jonathan Wells. What kind of names do they call you? Uh, creationist. What do you say back then when they say you're a creationist? Well, I usually don't get the opportunity. What's at stake for you personally here? First of all, I love science. I think the way Darwinism corrupts the evidence, distorts the evidence, is bad for science. Uh, well, the other scientists would tell you to just shut up if you love science. Because <laughs> you're, sort of, you're sort of being a bomb thrower into science. I am upsetting the apple cart, and I, yeah. think, I think it deserves to be upset in this case. Why? Because the evidence is being distorted to prop up a theory that I think doesn't fit it. Was Darwinism really that bad? Perhaps a change of scenery would give me a fresh perspective. Gotcha. <laughs> Mr. Berlinski, ISM, this time. How are you, sir? So where are you from originally? I was born in New York. Yes. And 31 years in Manhattan. Yes. And um, I spent a lot of time in California, too. And uh, tell me all the various universities where you studied or taught. Well, I was at Princeton, and I had a professorship at Stanford, and I left Stanford, and I taught at Rutgers. I left Rutgers, and I taught at the City College in New York. I left the City College in New York. I taught at the Baruch College. I taught at San Jose. What was the Baruch College? Anything they wanted. Come on in. Thank you, monsieur. What an old building. Wow. It's the oldest in Paris. You're kidding. Merci, monsieur. Ah, je vous en prie, monsieur. Merci. 
wow, this is fabulous. Let's put it this way. Before you can ask, is Darwinian theory correct or not, you have to ask the preliminary question, is it clear enough so that it could be correct? That's a very different question. One of, one of my um, prevailing doctrines about Darwinian theory is, man, that, that thing is just a mess. It's like looking into a room full of smoke. Um, nothing, nothing in the theory is precisely, clearly, carefully defined as delineated. It lacks all of the rigor one expects from mathematical physics, and mathematical physics lacks all the rigor one expects from mathematics. So we're talking about a gradual descent down the level of intelligibility until we reach evolutionary biology. We don't even know what a species is, for heaven's sakes. So this theory is smoke, but elegant smoke. There's a certain elegance to it, but, you know, I think Einstein had the appropriate remark. He preferred to leave elegance to his tailor. A room full of smoke? That certainly wasn't what I was hearing from prominent Darwinists like Richard Dawkins. Evolution is a fact. It's a fact which is established as securely as essentially any other fact that we have in science. Richard Dawkins is so confident that evolution is a fact and that therefore God doesn't exist that he has devoted his entire life to spreading the evolution gospel. I'm an atheist with respect to the Judeo-Christian God because there is not a shred of evidence in favor of the Judeo-Christian God. It is, it is completely right to say that since the evidence for evolution is so absolutely, totally overwhelming, nobody who looks at it could possibly doubt that if they were sane uh, and not stupid. So the only remaining possibility is that they're ignorant, and, the most, and most people who don't believe in evolution are indeed ignorant. But the people I spoke with weren't ignorant. They were highly credentialed scientists. So there had to be something else going on here. So you think the whole theory of evolution is false or just certain parts of it? Well, again, evolution is a slippery word. I would say minor changes within species happen. But Darwin didn't write a book called how species, how existing species change over time. He wrote a book called The Origin of Species. He purported to show how this same process leads to new species, in fact, every species. And the evidence for that grand claim is, in my opinion, almost totally lacking. How does Darwin or, or Darwinism say life began? Well, he didn't know. And in fact, nobody knows. So. Darwinism, strictly defined, starts after the origin of life and deals only with living things. Well, how can there be a theory about life without a theory about how life began? Well, a, a grand overarching evolutionary story, of course, does include the origin of life. But Darwin's theory doesn't begin until you have the first cell. Well, does someone have a theory about how life began? <laughs> This is the story of a small planet in space called Earth. For a typical Darwinian explanation of how life originated, Dr. Wells directed me toward this documentary. The chemical elements essential for life, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen, were now in place. What was needed was a way of combining them. Perhaps the energy came from lightning. Whatever it was. Excuse me? Whatever it was, energy managed to arrange these chemical ingredients in just the right way. Whatever it was? I was hoping for something a little more scientific. The most popular idea has been that life emerged spontaneously from primordial soup. 
fossils? Aliens? I thought we were talking about science, not science fiction. We don't know what caused life to arise. Was it, did it arise by a purely undirected process? Or did it arise by some kind of intelligent guidance or design? And the rules of science are, are being applied to actually foreclose one of the possible, one of the two possible answers to that very fundamental and basic and important question. So the rules of science say we will consider any possibility except one that is guided. Exactly. No matter how life began, on the backs of crystals or in the test tube of some intelligent designer, everyone agrees it started with a single cell. But what is a cell? Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Darwin wrote uh, The Origin of Species in 1859, published it in 1859. He had an idea of the cell as being quite simple, correct? Yeah, everybody did. Okay. If, if he thought of the cell as being a Buick, what is the cell now in terms of its complexity by comparison? A galaxy. If Darwin thought a cell was, say, a mud hut, what do we now know that a cell is? More complicated than um, a Saturn V. So what is in a cell as far as we know now? A world that Darwin never could have imagined. I needed someone who could give me a glimpse into this world. So we went to molecular biologist Doug Axe. Think of a cell as being a nanofactory, a factory where on a very small scale, Digital instructions are being used to make the components of the factory. Here we have the famous DNA double helix. You can see the two helical strands that are intertwined and wind around each other on the outside of the molecule. This is the material that stores all of our genetic information. In higher life forms, this will be the equivalent of something like a gigabyte of information stored in the molecules that form the individual chromosomes all packed within the nucleus, which is a tiny fraction of the entire cell size. So what does DNA do? Well, the information in DNA ends up providing the information for sequencing the amino acids to make proteins. So we have information in a one-dimensional form that provides the information for a three-dimensional form. Are there systems within the cell that go well beyond Darwinian evolution? Some type of cellular technology that drives adaptation, replication, quality control, and repair? What if these new mechanisms have massive design implications? 
Well, I say, so be it. The cell really is like nothing we've ever seen in the physical world. That's got to be firmly grasped. That, that's, that's not something we can just say, oh, well, just a little bit more of the same old, same old. It's not the same old, same old. What we are finding is that there's information that's in the cell that cannot be accounted for in terms of these undirected material causes. So there's, it has there, to be. And so there's, there's some, some other, so there's, there has to be an information source. So one of the key questions faced by modern biology is, where do you get information from? Well, uh, Darwin assumed that the increase in information comes from natural selection. But natural selection reduces genetic information. And we know this from all the genetic population studies that we have. And where is the new genetic information going to come from? Well, that's the big question. So when we find information in the DNA molecule, the most likely explanation is that it too had an intelligent source. I mean, we need engineering principles to understand these systems. Okay? I mean, it's only because of our advancements in nanotechnology that we can even begin to appreciate these systems. But using intelligent design didn't seem to stop the scientists I spoke with, so why all the controversy? Suppose we find, simply as a matter of fact, that our scientific inquiries point in one direction. Which is that there is an intelligent creator. Why should we eliminate that from discussion? String verboten? How come? Why? String verboten. Very good. What does string verboten mean? Strongly forbidden. Strongly forbidden. You've got two possible hypotheses. You've got a wall through the middle of your, through your brain, in effect, through your thinking. You say, well, you can't consider anything on this side of the wall. Only hypotheses on this side of the wall are permissible for consideration. What about academic freedom? I mean, can't we just talk about this? They, their reply is that science is not a democratic process. Oh, really? And that there is a consensus view. But wait a second, but Darwin challenged the consensus view, and that's how we got Darwinism. If Darwin wanted to challenge the consensus today, how would he do it? Science isn't a hobby for rich aristocrats anymore. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And if you want a piece of the pie, you've got to be a good comrade. Scientific ideas. How we get them to you, the people. Every idea must be inspected to ensure that it is safe. All theories must pass through a series of checkpoints. First, the academy. Getting a controversial theory through the academy can be dangerous. Few people know this better than Congressman Mark Souter. He uncovered a targeted campaign led by individuals within the Smithsonian and the National Center for Science Education to destroy Dr. Sternberg's credibility. If you want peer reviews, if, if you want to be published, if you want to go to respected institutions, the, the core view does not tolerate dissent. There's kind of a, this is the way it is, and anybody who's a dissenter should be squashed. Are you going to be on my side if I let you up? Sure, Chief, sure. I'm on your side. Just let me up. I'll do anything you say. Souter isn't the only one who's witnessed the Academy's tactics. Journalist Larry Witham has seen similar behavior during his 25 years of covering the evolution controversy. Once you're, you're thick in science, you can't question the paradigm. But if you want to get grants, if you want to be elected to high positions, if you want to be get awards as a promoter of public education of science, you can't question the paradigm. People cannot be trusted to form their own opinions. 
this business about open-mindedness is nonsense. Why is the scientific establishment so afraid of free speech? There is this fear that if one aspect of the theory is closely scrutinized, there's going to be an unraveling. So I use a time great and powerful wizard of Oz. I interviewed dozens and dozens of scientists, and uh, when they're amongst each other or talking to a journalist who they trust, uh, they'll speak about, um, you know, it's, it's incredibly complex or molecular biology is in a crisis. But publicly, they can't say that. Keeping a keen eye on the academy, our various watchdog organizations. Listen to Eugenie Scott of the National Center for Science Education. The NCSE has been at the heart of virtually every evolution controversy over the past 25 years, vigorously defending the Darwinian gospel. We have had a lot of business, unfortunately, at NCSE in the last few years because virtually every state in which science education standards has come up for consideration has had a big fight about the coverage of evolution in them. NCSE was started by a group of scientists and teachers who were very concerned because in the late 70s and early 80s there were a lot of attempts to pass equal time for creation science and evolution laws. And clearly this is something that neither scientists nor teachers liked. It wasn't exactly help help the creationists are coming, but it's, you know, kind of along those lines. Most scientists uh, just throw up their hands and say, creationists, they drive me crazy, you know, you handle it. We work a lot with science education organizations. The most important group we work with is members of the faith community because the best kept secret in this controversy is that Catholics and mainstream Protestants are okay on evolution. Are you sure about that, Eugenie? Liberal Christians have been fighting with conservative Christians for so long that they'll side with anybody against the fundamentalists. And Eugenie Scott says, well, welcome over. There's a kind of science defense lobby, or an evolution defense lobby in particular. They are mostly atheists, but they are wanting to, desperately wanting to be friendly to mainstream, uh, sensible, religious people. And the way you do that is to tell them that there's no uh, incompatibility between science and religion. But is there really an incompatibility? Can't we believe in God and Darwin? Implicit in most evolutionary theory is that either there's no God or God can't have anything, any role in it. So naturally, as, as many evolutionists will say, it's, it's the strongest engine for atheism. They called me as a witness, and a, and a lawyer said, uh, Dr. Dawkins, uh, has your belief in evolution, has your study of evolution turned you towards atheism? I would have to say yes. And that's the worst possible thing I could say for winning that that court case. So people like me are bad news for the science lobby, the evolution lobby. By the way, I'm being a hell of a lot more frank and honest in this interview than many people in this field would be. Working hard to keep ideas in check are our friends in the media. Morning, paper. Paper, mister? The tendencies of the media to side with the establishment because they inherently agree with the establishment. Eugenie Scott, my understanding is that there is not a single peer-reviewed article out there that supports intelligent design. Am I wrong? You are not wrong. You are correct. I believe that we get coverage, but we always get coverage like 
we're the outsider, not like it's an even debate. But instead of merely reporting news, he analyzes it, often expressing his personal opinion. We constantly deal with reporters who refuse even to report the correct definition of intelligent design. They, over and over again, talk about uh, <clears throat> life is so complex, God must have done it. Just admit it, it's religion. It just can't, it's religion. It's a wanton distortion of our position. Study that. Yeah, I've got a hot story here. You can look at, at Associated Press stories, and the same sentence will appear in those stories for 10 years. Intelligent design says that life is too complex. It's, it's called a boilerplate. And the reporter never reports anymore or gets any new ways to say it, so the, the public understanding never advances. But what happens if a reporter decides to take a more balanced approach to intelligent design? There might be... Uh, remarkable pressure on that reporter not to side against the evolutionists. I thought I told you to kill that story. Few reporters have learned this better than author and journalist Pamela Winnick. When she refused to take sides in an article she wrote about intelligent design, the Darwinists found a new favorite target. For one, I was a Christian, I was Jewish. For two, I wasn't religious. Number three, I was not taking a position uh, in favor of creationism. I was writing about intelligent design, and it didn't matter. After I wrote that one piece, everything I wrote on the subject was scrutinized. There were hate letters coming into the newspaper. If you give any piece to it whatsoever, which means just writing about it, you are just finished as a journalist. Other journalists we spoke with told similar stories but didn't dare appear on camera. And now, the presses are ready to roll. When all other checkpoints fail, there is always the court. We have spent an enormous amount of time trying to prove to the court what everybody already knows, that intelligent design is a particular religious belief. But I thought scientific questions were settled by the evidence, not by taking people to court and suing them. How do other countries deal with such disputes? Dr. Marcy Giertuk, a population geneticist who now represents Poland in the European Parliament, was able to shed some light on this topic. The censorship of uh, teaching the criticism of evolution is and always was much stronger in seeing your country, the United States. In ever was Why? Why would the censorship? That is because you have a political correctness in your country. These issues are brought to court, and the court says what you can and what you cannot teach. We want to know what you teach, what books you use, how you teach it. We never had that, that sort of way of, uh, of deciding the scientific issues in Poland. We never had the courts in Poland. So you, you are saying that as far as the teaching of science is concerned, Poland is freer academically than the United States. I think in, in this particular issue of evolution, I, I think this is true. But how affected are the courts in deciding such matters? What about the general idea that intelligent design is doomed as a result of several recent legal setbacks? Uh, I, I think court, court cases don't decide anything. I mean, if you look at the Strokes trial, who won that trial? 
I wasn't the evolutionist. I mean, it was the, the, the Tennessee law was upheld, barring evolution. And yet, in the popular imagination, Silkson's the hero, Inherit the Wind, that movie, uh, which is really oldest history based on the Silks trial, has, uh, has carried the day. These issues are, go much deeper than, than any decision by a judge. The evolution debate does seem to run much deeper than the courts, much deeper even than science. To generate this level of hostility, ID must threaten something at the very core of the Darwinian establishment. The entire globe is today the site of a momentous conflict. It is the challenge of ideas. I'm Edward R. Murrow. For a little while, I would like to review with you the great conflict of our times. One which demands and must get the attention and the involvement of each one of us. This conflict over the principles of evolution has become a religious war. It, it really is no longer about scientific investigation. It is total competition with an antagonist who is putting into it everything within his capability. The situation has reached a point where many of evolution's top apologists have switched from defending Darwinism to attacking religion in what they see as a bid to stamp out intelligent design at the source. Richard Dawkins is the best example of this. His recent book, The God Delusion, has sold over one million copies worldwide. The God Delusion is uh, my long-expected, long-worked-on a full frontal attack on religion. To me, science is about trying to explain existence, and religion is about trying to explain existence. It's just that religion gets the wrong answer. But is Dawkins correct? Are science and religion really at war? For an appraisal of this continuing and protracted conflict, we can go to a reporter who has watched the growing conflict with the perception of a trained military observer. Oxford professor Alistair McGrath, author of The Dawkins Delusion, seems like the ideal person to answer my question. Richard Dawkins has a, a charming and very, I think, interesting view of the relationship between science and religion. They're at war with each other, and in the end, one's got to win, and it's going to be science. It's a very naive view. It's based on a complete historical misrepresentation of the way science and religion have interacted. Dawkins seems to think that scientific description is an anti-religious argument. Describing how something happens scientifically somehow explains it away. It doesn't. But the questions of purpose, intentionality, the question why, still remain there on the table. And I think it's just a, a catastrophic mistake to have someone like Dawkins uh, address himself to profound issues of theology, the existence of God, the nature of life. He hasn't committed himself to discipline study in any relevant area. He's a crummy philosopher. He doesn't have the rudimentary skills to, to, to meticulously assess his own arguments. Genius guy, though. Very smart guy. A little bit of a reptile, but very smart guy. The opposing point of view in this conflict rests on a fundamentally different vision of man. If you have two distinguished scientists, and in fact you can range many more on each side, as you know, saying exactly opposite things, that's telling me that the conflict is not between science and belief in God, otherwise you'd expect all scientists to be atheists. But it's a worldview conflict. It's between scientists who have different worldviews. You've got two competing explanations of the evidence. 
One says design, one says undirected processes. Both of them have larger philosophical or religious or anti-religious implications. So you can't say that one of those two theories is scientific and the other is unscientific simply because they have implications. Both have implications. People who tell you, for example, that science tells you all you need to know about the world or that science tells you that religion is all wrong or science tells you there is no God, those people aren't telling you scientific things. They are saying metaphysical things and they have to defend their positions for metaphysical reasons. What is being presented to the public is first comes the science and then comes the worldview. I would want to argue that that may not be the case, that it may actually be the other way around, that the worldview comes first and is influencing the interpretation of science. My deep regret is some people are so deeply entrenched in their own worldviews that they will simply not countenance alternatives. I'm actually a person of the left. Uh, and not even a particularly religious person. I think of myself as kind of humanist. And I think it's sending a very bad message to religious people who are interested in science that in some sense, in order to do science credibly, they have to leave their religious beliefs at the door. The founders of early modern science, Sir Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, Johannes Kepler, Galileo, most of these uh, early scientists all not only believed in God, but they thought their belief in God actually made it easier to do science. You can be religiously motivated, and you can do good science. And they have more often gone together than not gone together. Admitting our biases is the best way towards rational discussion, which I would welcome. Rational debate is a nice thought, but it's nearly impossible in the current climate. I'd seen the chilling effect that this unquestioning devotion to Darwinism has had on science. But were there other consequences? No gods, no life after death, no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no human free will are all deeply connected to an, an evolutionary perspective. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow, and that's all there is to it. Dr. Will Provine, professor of the history of biology at Cornell University, gave us another disturbing glimpse into where Darwinism can lead. Oh, I was a Christian, but I never heard anything about evolution because it was illegal to teach it in Tennessee. Dr. Provine's first biology professor changed all that. He started talking about evolution as if it had no design in it whatsoever. And I came up to him and I said, you left out the most important part. And he said, if you feel the same way at the end of one quarter, I want you to stand up in front of the students in this class and tell them this deep whack in evolution. And I read that book so carefully, I could find no sign of there being any design whatsoever in evolution. And I immediately began to doubt the existence of the deity. But it starts by giving up an active deity, then it gives up the hope that there's any life after death. When you give those two up, the rest of it follows fairly easily. You give up the hope that there's a, an imminent morality, and finally, there's no human free will. If you believe in evolution, you hope for the any free will. There's no hope whatsoever of there being any deep meaning in human life. We live we die and we're gone. 
absolutely gone when he died. Dr. Provine is no stranger to the prospect of death. Nearly a decade ago, he was diagnosed with a large brain tumor. Let's suppose my tumor comes back, as I almost certainly will. Well, I'm not going to sit around like my older brother did last year, and he was dying of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. He wanted desperately to die, but we couldn't help him die. I don't want to die like that. I'm going to shoot myself in the head long before then. I'm going to do something different. I hope these are empty words for my friend, Dr. Provine, because shortly after this interview was recorded, he learned his brain tumor had returned. I don't feel one bit bad about holding the views that I do. Not anything in the views I hold that makes me, oh, I wish I had free will, or oh, I wish there were a God. I don't ever, ever wish. Dr. Provine's deconversion story was typical amongst the Darwinists we interviewed. Biologist P.Z. Myers, who runs the pro-Darwin anti-religion law for Ringula, says science eroded his faith as well. I, I never hated religion. I found religion quite comfortable. I liked the people in it. Uh, what led to the atheism was learning more about science, learning more about the natural world, and seeing these horrible conflicts with religion. And it was then when I discovered evolution, when I discovered Darwinism, I realized there's this magnificently elegant, stunningly elegant explanation, um, which I didn't quite understand to begin with. When I did understand it, then that finally killed off my remaining religious faith. After hearing these stories, I was not surprised to discover that most evolutionary biologists share Professor Dawkins' views. It appears Darwinism does lead to atheism, despite what Eugenie Scott would have us believe. And if you separate out the ethical message from religion what have you got left you got you got a bunch of fairy tales right i think that god is about as unlikely as fairies angels uh hobgoblins etc religion i mean it's just fantasy basically it's completely empty of any explanatory content and it's evil as well Half the people in this country think that drugs is what you have to regulate to make it safer, and half the people think guns. That's what you've got to regulate to make it safer. But I always think if you're going to regulate one thing that has the most potential to cause death and destruction, religion. You've got to start with religion. Religion is, is an idea that gives some people comfort, and we don't want to take it away from them. It's like, it's like knitting. People like to knit. We're not going to take their knitting needles away. We're not going to take away their churches. Uh, but what we have to do is get, get it to a place where religion is treated at the level it should be treated. That is something fun that people get together and do on the weekend and really doesn't affect their life as much as it has been so far. So what would the world look like if Dr. Myers got his wish? Greater science literacy, which is going to lead to the erosion of religion. And then we'll get this nice positive feedback mechanism going, whereas religion slowly fades away, we get more and more science to replace it. And that will displace more and more religion, which will allow more and more science in. And we'll eventually get to that point where religion has taken that appropriate place as a side dish rather than the main course. But... Will eradicating religion really lead to a modern utopia? Hmm. 
Let me try to imagine that. And let's let history be our guide. In part, I think Matthew Arnold uh, put his hands on it when he spoke about um, the withdrawal of faith. There is a connection between a society that has at least a minimal commitment to certain kinds of um, transcendental values and what human beings permit themselves to do one to the other. That got me thinking. What other societies have used Darwinism to trump all other authorities, including religion? As a Jew, my mind leapt to one regime in particular. The connection between Hitler and Darwin is, of course, historically a difficult connection because they were separated by a good many years. One was English, one was German. Nonetheless, if you open Mein Kampf and read it, especially if you can read it in German, the correspondence between Darwinian ideas and Nazi ideas just leaps from the page. Of course, you have to add every historical caution. Not everyone who read Darwin became a Nazi. Obviously not. No one is making that case. Darwinism is not a sufficient condition for a phenomenon like Nazism, but I think it's certainly a necessary one. This was a connection I had to explore personally. arrive at a Nazi institution seized by First Army troops. Under the guise of an insane asylum, this has been the headquarters for the systematic war. So what is this place? During the Second World War, 15,000 people were killed here. Why were they killed? They were killed because they were people with uh, handicaps. Why kill them? What's the point of killing them? People who were not able to work, people who were not able to live by themselves, that they were useless eaters. Useless eaters. And life unworthy of living. This idea grew up in the 20s. So long before National Socialism, biologists, anthropologists, they thought um, that maybe uh, mankind could, or the, or the the government could interfere into the growth of the population. I see. And they had the utopia. Utopia. Utopia, that they would have a society without illness and without handicap. Alles Lebensschwache geht in der Natur unfehlbar zugrunde. Wir Menschen haben gegen dieses Gesetz der natürlichen Auslese in den letzten Jahrzehnten furchtbar gesündigt. Wir haben unwertes Leben nicht nur erhalten, wir haben ihm auch Vermehrung gewährt. Die Nachkommen dieser Kranken sahen so aus, die tiefer stehen als jedes Tier. So this was a Darwinian concept. And also a Malthusian concept, very much Malthusian. Thomas Malthus, who said that there was a shortage of resources. English philosopher, so there's a yes, shortage. Yes, but, but the Nazi, they relied on Darwin. They relied on Darwin. Yes, Darwin and German Patients were led down this hallway to Nazi doctors who decided who would live and who would die. They were accompanied by 15, um, 15 nurses. Nurses, yes. Nurses, male and female nurses. So nurses were helping lead them to their doom. Yes.
So were the prisoners told they were taking a shower? Yes, they were taking a shower, and here was one or two showers. So how many people were brought into this room? 60 to 70. So what is this? This is the dissection table. Do you ever think to yourself, the sane ones were the ones lying here having their brains removed. The insane one was Dr. Gorgas and all the other people. No, no, I don't think that because I think um, those people who killed here, they were very sane they, because they had their purposes. They had purposes. I don't think they were insane. Two crematory ovens. I see. And they killed about 70 people. A day. So a day. So they had. That's um, barely enough. And they yeah. they only they only killed from Monday to Friday. So. Because the people who are doing the killing need to take the weekend off. If you met Dr. Gorgas today, what would you say to him? I don't know. I I don't think that it's my my vote to tell him something. It's difficult to describe how it felt to walk through such a haunting place, to know that these cold stone and tile walls were the last things the victims of Hadamar ever saw. I wanted to explore this connection further, so I met with the author of From Darwin to Hitler, Dr. Richard Weikart. Hitler and many of the physicians that carried out this program were very fanatical Darwinists and particularly wanted to apply Darwinism to society. Many of these people in the 19-teens, 1920s, who were putting forward some of these ideas about racism were considered the leading, uh, leading scientists. Uh, these were Darwinists who were taken seriously by fellow academics. It's not to say that all academics believed it. These leading academics, were there any of them that were Americans? There were plenty of Americans uh, who were saying similar kinds of things. Not only were Americans saying such things, they were pioneers in this fledgling science known as eugenics. They thought they could help evolution along by sterilizing the so-called feeble-minded and prohibiting them from getting married. Physicians who are aware of the history of 20th century American medicine and harbor some, um, uh, some bad feelings towards Darwinists because of eugenics. Uh, and the eugenics, which was a, an, an attempt to breed human beings, it was uh, the darkest chapter of American medicine ever. There were 50,000 people involuntarily sterilized because they were deemed uh, unfit to breed, basically. Eugenics isn't just history. The spirit of the movement lives on today. Uh, Margaret Sanger was the head of Planned Parenthood. Uh, she was a very uh, fanatical in her promotion of eugenics. In fact, uh, Planned Parenthood was all about birth control for the uh, impoverished and lower classes to try to help improve the species. From Hadamar, I traveled with Dr. Weikart to Dachau, 
where the Nazis applied the ideas of eugenics on a massive mechanistic scale. When it was a fully functioning concentration camp, and uh, what was the purpose of it? I mean, part of it was to repress political enemies. What was the, what was the rest of the purpose? Well, beyond the repression of the political enemies, which was its purpose from the, at the very beginning, then later on it transformed into repressing uh, racial enemies. And sometimes those categories overlapped because sometimes they thought that these people were political enemies because they were inferior biologically. The war itself was part of the Darwinian struggle for existence for Hitler. And he saw the extermination of the Jews as one of those fronts to this uh, warfare going on uh, as a Darwinian struggle for existence. Would you say that Hitler was insane? No, I wouldn't say he was insane. I think he uh, had imbibed some very, very wrong ideas. Uh, and in fact, I think he uh, took the logic of them uh, in certain ways that uh, brought him to uh, take very radical solutions for them. Would you say he was evil? Oh, I'd definitely say he was evil. Is there such a thing as evil? Oh, I think there is. And is there such a thing as good? Oh, definitely. And evil can sometimes be rationalized as science. Oh, sure. And evil can sometimes be rationalized. When it's rationalized as science, and I think when it's rationalized in this particular way in particular, I think Hitler thought he was doing good. He thought he was doing good. Oh, I think so. He thought he was benefiting, he thought he was benefiting humanity by driving evolution forward and creating a better humanity. Before leaving Dachau, I stopped by the memorial commemorating the thousands of Jews who were killed there in excruciating conditions. I know that Darwinism does not automatically equate to Nazism, but if Darwinism inspired and justified such horrific events in the past, could it be used to rationalize similar initiatives today? There's a good German expression, so fängt es immer ein. I mean, it always begins in the same way. Uh, something to remember in the context of the United States' discussions of euthanasia and abortion. It always begins in the same way. There seems to be a, an excellent argument for getting rid of useless people by killing them. Or at least it seems excellent to the people advancing the argument. It's a love affair with death and, you know, the euthanasia and this movement going on, which I find appalling. And the idea is that, you know, immediately rid our society of anybody who might be a terrain um, and think of people in economic terms. And I think that's where some of the Darwin fits in, actually, it's just the devaluing of human life. First of all, if you take seriously that evolution has to do with, you know, the transition of life forms and that life and death are just natural processes, then one gets to be liberal about abortion and euthanasia. All of those kinds of ideas uh, seem to me follow very naturally from a Darwinian perspective a deprivileging of human beings, basically. Uh, and I think that people who want to endorse uh, Darwinism have to sort of take this kind of viewpoint very seriously. And, and when we see an elite, and it is an elite, an elite that controls essentially all the research money in science, saying there is no such thing as moral truth, science will not be related to religion. I mean, it's essentially official policy of the National Academy of Science that religion and science will not be related. I mean, hey, you know, that cuts off a lot of debate, doesn't it? What's going to happen if this doesn't change? Well, I think we're watching it happen, aren't we? I needed time to think, so I traveled to the birthplace of this idea. 
savages, the weak in body or mind are soon eliminated. We civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick. Thus the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. Hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed. Charles Darwin, The Descent of Man, 1871. become the great nation that it is by suppressing ideas. It progressed by allowing freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry. Thomas Jefferson got it right when he wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have given their lives to protect these values, but now they're under threat once again. It wasn't just scientists who were being expelled. It was freedom itself, the very foundation of the American dream, the very foundation of America. If we allowed freedom to be expelled in science, where would it end? The Darwinian establishment is so massive and so entrenched, it appears impenetrable. I couldn't bring it down myself, but I could at least confront those who had expelled the scientists I'd met. What would you say if you had Eugenie Scott sitting next to you? What would you say to her? I would ask her by what authority does she and, and those like her 
presume to declare what is and is not science. No, he sort of made himself martyr of the day. They've gotten a lot of mileage out of, you know, poor Rick Sternberg. <laughs> we got lip service from the leadership of the Smithsonian, uh, but I didn't feel they ever followed through. We went into the Smithsonian looking for answers, but we ran into the same stone wall as Congressman Sauter. He said, nonetheless, you have to be disciplined, and I lost my job. We did get an interview with a spokesman from George Mason, but it was impossible to knock him off his script. Her contract was not renewed it was simply um, not renewing her contract, which she satisfied. And her contract was not renewed. It had nothing to do with the controversy of, of, of that topic of intelligent design. I have never been uh, treated like this in my about 30 years in academia. We received a similar reception at Baylor University. They refused to admit that what had happened to Dr. Marx had anything to do with ID. Uh, certainly the conversations I've had, uh, this is not the uh, intelligent design situation. It's not been the thrust of the conversation. It's a procedural issue, and that's, that's the way we go. Funny, that's not how Dean Kelly put things in his original email to Dr. Marx. I'm not mixing my religion with my science. The questions that I ask in, in my intelligent design research are perfectly legitimate scientific questions. At least the top guns at Iowa State were willing to own up to their actions. What we wanted to stop is uh, the use of the name of ISU to validate intelligent design And we did succeed. I really think a lot of Goodyear is a great guy. So, I mean, that's why I'm kind of disappointed, all right, that he should have just left us alone. In my opinion, should have just left us alone. Dr. Hapton elaborated further on his great regard for Gonzalez. Uh, this is quoting an email from you to Mr. Avalos. You say, sometimes it is just best to ignore idiots, in reference to Guillermo. And then the religious nutcases should be challenged at every opportunity. Yeah, because, for example, you... <laughs> uh, in that case, I'm thinking more of, say, the creationist crowd who claims that uh, God put all the animals on an ark and that's it. All right? That's where all, all our animals came from today. That's crazy. Okay? You shouldn't be insulting even children with that kind of thing. So these are the idiots, all right? They've always been around. They've always been around. Going after the perpetrators in each of these cases wasn't getting me anywhere. So I reconnected with Dr. Berlinski and Dr. Schroeder to see if they had any advice. There's a boundary to what science will accept right now. I think the paradigm is exactly this wall coming down. Ask any Berliner on the east, from the east side what it makes to have the wall come down. It, it is possible to make a, a break in the wall that will allow academia to ask these fundamental questions that exist and allow them in the science classrooms as well. It'd be nice to see the scientific establishment lose some of its prestige and power. It'd be nice to see other questions being opened up. Above all, it'd be nice to have a real spirit of self-criticism penetrating the science. What can I do to bring down a wall? Is there anything I can do? 
make it apparent to the world that a wall exists. There are vast numbers of persons who talk about academic freedom. And there is academic freedom as long as you're on the correct side of the wall. But if you're on the wrong side of the wall, as you mentioned a few moments ago, you lose tenure. And that's a given. I took Dr. Schroeder's words to heart. Obviously, I couldn't take down the wall myself, but I could confront one of its modern architects. How are you? I'm Ben Stein. I'm just sorry to keep you waiting. How are you? Fine, thank you. You have uh, you have written that uh, God is a psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. No, I didn't say quite that. I said something rather better than that. Oh, well, please tell us. Well, I would have to read it from, from, from the book. No, please. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So that's what you think of God? Yeah. How about if, how about if people believe in a God of infinite lovingness and kindness and forgiveness and generosity, sort of like the modern-day God? Why spoil it for them? Oh, um... Why not just let them have their fun and enjoy it? I mean, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. I I write a book. People can read it if they want to. Um, I believe that it is a liberating thing to free yourself from primitive superstitions. So religion is a primitive superstition? Oh, I I think it is, yes. So uh, you believe it's liberating to uh, tell people that there is no God? I think a lot of people, when they give up God, feel a great sense of release uh, and freedom. Why do you think that? I mean, what's your well, dad? What's your scientist? What's your dad? I think, well, I've had a lot of, of letters saying that. And I've, there are 8 billion people in the world. Yeah, I, I know. How many letters yeah, do you have? Yeah, I haven't done that. That's that, quite, quite true. Professor Dawkins seemed so convinced that God doesn't exist that I wondered if he would be willing to put a number on it. Well, hard to put a figure on it, but, but I, I, I mean, I put it as something like you know, 99% against or something. Well, how do you do it's 99% against, say, in 97? No, I you asked me to put a figure on it, and I, I'm not comfortable putting a figure on it. I think it's, I, I just think it's very unlikely. What? But you couldn't put a number on it? No, of course not. So it, it could would be, be 49%? Well, I, it would be, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's unlikely, but, but I, and, and it's, Quite far from 50%. How do you know? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I put an argument in the book. Well, then who did create the heavens and the earth? Why do you use the word who? You, see, you, you, you immediately beg the question by using the word who. 
Well, then how did it get created? Well, um, by a very slow process. Well, how did it start? Nobody knows how it started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that, that must have happened for the origin of life. What was that? It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Right, and how did that happen? I told you, we don't know. So you have no idea how it started? No, 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 no nor has anyone. Nor has anyone else. What do you think is the possibility that, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in well, evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, that is a possibility and, a, and an intriguing possibility. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry and molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design, just certain types of designers, such as God. So the, the Hebrew God, the God of the Old Testament, he doesn't exist in your view. Uh, Certainly, I mean, that would be a very unpleasant pro prospect. And uh, the trend, holy trinity of the New Testament. Nothing like that. Do you believe in any of the uh, Hindu gods? Like How Vishnu? can you ask such a question? You don't, How right? could I? I mean, why, why would I, given that I don't believe in any other? You don't believe in the Muslim god? No. Why do you even need to ask? Well, I just wanted to be sure. So you don't believe in any god anywhere? Any god anywhere would be completely incompatible. With, 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 with anything that I've said. In, 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 yeah. I'm just trying to make sure you don't believe in any God anywhere. No. What if, you, if after you died you ran into God? He said, what have you been doing, Richard? I mean, what have you been doing? I've been trying well, to be nice to you. Yeah. I gave you a multi-million dollar paycheck yeah. over and over again with your book, and look what you did. Bertrand Russell was, had that point put to him. He said um, something like, Sir... Why did you take such pains to hide yourself? But if the intelligent design people are right, God isn't hidden. We may even be able to encounter God through science, if we have the freedom to go there. What could be more intriguing than that? We take freedom for granted here in the United States. Freedom is what this country is all about. And a huge part of freedom is freedom of inquiry. But now, I'm sorry to say, freedom of inquiry in science is being suppressed. Behind me stands a wall that encircles the free sectors of this city, part of a vast system of barriers. There are people out there who want to keep science in a little box where it can't possibly touch 
a higher power cannot possibly touch God. Those barriers cut across Germany in a gash of barbed wire, concrete, dog runs, and guard towers. If you believe in God, and you believe that there is an intrinsic order in the universe, and you believe that it's the role of science to try to pursue and understand better that order, you will be ostracized. I'm frightened by this, but I'm not going to let it stop me from investigating and from speaking. The wall cannot withstand freedom. What I'm asking for is, is the freedom to follow the evidence wherever it leads. My hope is that there'll be enough independent thinking scientists who don't like to be told what to think. People on both sides of the argument being prepared to talk and listen, and above all, a willingness to keep these dialogues open. It might allow a lot of very good scientists to be scientists who aren't being allowed to be scientists right now. I don't care what they end up being. I don't care if they end up being religious, uh, a young earth creationist, if they have fought their way through the issue and get there, I'm all for them. And why do I think we're going to win in this struggle? Because truth crushed earth will rise again. To find out what's true has a value all of its own. If it has additional good consequences, so be it. Because no lie can live forever. I believe that science gives us one perspective on the world, and our religious insight gives us another perspective on the world. By putting the two together, it will seem more deeply and more truly. And if we will stand up for freedom, freedom is the victory. If we all do that, we will overcome.
490,138-mile flight to the International Space Station. As you can clearly see, this is no space shuttle. There is no space. This is nothing more than an airplane. And that parachute behind this airplane is part of the illusion. NASA is nothing more than a Masonic PSYOP deceiving the whole world.
look up to the ends of the earth and see it under the whole heaven. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.